Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is Zara, the co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? This is Drew. How you doing? Hey, hey, look at this. Look how professional we sound. No shenanigans whatsoever. (laughs) We have truly grown up in 2023, and we are entering (laughs) 2024 as grown men. Not children, but men. But men with pecs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> happy 200th episode man happy 200th episode this is a a, a a true sign of our maturation we have evolved from the boys that like comics into the men who like comics that's right truly i feel mighty so speak <laughs> with for this yourself, man I, I i think i feel as feeble as i've ever felt <laughs> maybe we've just skipped that entire part where we became men who like who liked comics and became just went from boys who like comics to geriatrics who like comics yeah that's probably the case (laughs) anyways for this week's episode we figured that since we are coming to the end of the year and entering a new year we thought thematically it'd be a good idea to cover a comic that started this year as a way to ring in the new year just something that gained popularity and attention and you know just take this as an opportunity to discuss something that neither of us has really had a chance to read until now but to address something that has a pretty prominent popularity within the comics reading culture so go ahead and tell them drew What is it we are reading today? So today we are covering World Tree, Volume 1, by James Tanyan IV, Fernando Blanco, Jordi Belair, and Aditya Bidikar. So originally, funny thing is, we were going to... We had been talking about reading this comic for the first episode of 2024, but I think last week we realized that we didn't actually have access to the comic easily and the library somehow disappointed us. It wasn't available there. And on Hoopla, our usual go-to source for digital comics borrowing, it wasn't on Hoopla either. But I did have the first issue of World Tree that I found in a quarter bin earlier this year. So we were originally just going to cover the first issue due to lack of time and availability but somehow some way the comic book gods sought to rain down upon us first fruits of on hoopla so we were able to find it today for some reason it wasn't it wasn't there last week what happened albert how that happened i don't know well here's the thing and i i feel like we Okay, 
So what I did today was I searched under Hoopla, I searched for Tinian's name and it came up. And I could have swore that I had searched under his name last time, but I did see that when I typed in world tree where the E's are spelled with threes instead of E's, mm -hmm. that nothing came up. But even so, I felt like last time around uh, when we were looking to to see if we could find it on Hoopla, I could have swore I searched under his name. But I definitely did, and World Tree did not come up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, exactly. I searched under his name. I typed in World Tree, and I spelled it the way that the comic spells it with the the zero and the two threes, which is mm. always annoying. I find that incredibly annoying. It just gave us another reason to like the book to like the book even less. <laughs> <laughs> just reminds me Any... of speak from when we were kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime anything just adds a little extra chore to something that I would normally do without thinking about it, I, I subtract points <laughs> from whatever like ledger exists in my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But whatever, somehow it turned up on Hoopla today, so we we did a quick last-minute read of the four issues that we didn't read earlier. So now we are covering the entire first volume of the series, which is probably going to make it a better discussion, because now we've got a little bit more story to, to chew on. Yep. But see what we do anyway, you people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we could have easily been lazy and just stuck to covering the first issue. Yeah, yeah. But we decided that we are committed to quality here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'll do a quick rundown of the credits. We're talking about World Tree, Volume One. Written by James Tanyan the Fourth. Art by Fernando Blanco, colored by Jordi Belair, lettered by Aditya Bidikar, edited by Steve Fox, and designed by Dylan Todd. This series is still ongoing. It is published by Image Comics. The first issue came out with the cover date of April 2023. So as Albert was saying earlier, this is a series that started in 2023, and we thought it would be good to try and read something a little bit more recent because I feel like we probably tend to cover stuff that at least has been out a couple years. Yeah. If not yeah. more. So we're it's we're trying to remain are. contemporary and, and relevant. This is our grasp at uh, relevance, I suppose. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we're not geriatrics. We're just at the midlife crisis stage where we're, we want people to recognize that we're still relevant and we matter. <laughs> <laughs> We're buying uh, fast, loud cars, uh, hollering at young, attractive women that have zero interest in us, uh, <laughs> <laughs> taking a lot of testosterone pills just to try to bulk up and start fight with younger guys. You know, real douchebag stuff. <laughs> the comic book equi podcast equivalent of whatever that is. <laughs> Happy 200th episode, Albert. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thank you thank you uh well anyways um yeah do you want me to give a sh brief synopsis of the series sure man 
1999, Gabriel and his friends discover the Undernet, a secret architecture to the internet. They charted their exploration on a message board called World Tree. Then they lost control. Someone broke into World Tree, someone who welcomed the violent hold the Undernet had on them. At great personal cost, Gabriel and the others thought they sealed the under, Undernet away for good. They were wrong. And now the whole world will know the meaning of fear, spelled ph 3 4 r Don't miss the next major horror outing from multiple Eisner Award-winning writer James Tinian IV. <laughs> I think his name is actually pronounced Tanyan. Yeah, I know, but my convenience is more important than <laughs> his <laughs> his pronunciation. <laughs> uh, if it means that I have to work a little extra harder to pronounce his name right, I'll tell you what, he can always write me a letter. <laughs> I don't guarantee that I'll read it. I don't guarantee that I'll even acknowledge it, but sure. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. I see how it's going to be. So... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it's always been, Drew. That's true. That is true. That's true. Uh, So so, tell us, Albert, what are your general thoughts on James Tanyan IV? Okay, so he's a name that I've seen around on a lot of things at this point in my comics reading, uh, you know, adventures. And... Even though I've seen his name around, I can't honestly say or remember anything of his that I've actually read. Uh, I feel like I've read, I found a bunch of 88-page giants and specials or 100-page specials from DC, those anthologies that they make for you know different occasions. And they always include a bunch of different writers. And I feel like I might have read something with his name attached to it in one of those. Um, maybe there's a chance I could have just read one of his comics, you know, from a random quarter bin or anything, but whatever it was, I don't remember any of it. So, you know, like last week, this is my opportunity to put my finger on the pulse of comics culture and associate myself with what's popular at the time. And I guess he's the thing. He's the man. Um, yeah, like he's a pretty blank slate to me. Uh, prior to this, all I knew was that I had seen his name around a lot. What about you, Drew? Thoughts? One more question. Do you think the fact that you've seen his name around and you potentially, possibly read some of his short stories or random issues of his work, but don't remember anything about what you read, did that give you more of a negative vibe on his work? Um. I think the contrarian in me is naturally inclined to be disinterested in things when so many other people like it that much more. Yeah. Yeah. It's just my, those are just my instincts at work. So (laughs) yeah. Um, I don't know. I suppose I don't have any real reason to, love him or dislike him minus minus the fact that he's one of the most popular and biggest writers in comics right now 
Yeah, and and also minus like just any actual opinion I have on like the quality of his work. But outside of that, I guess I'm inclined to give him a shot, if only because of the prominence of his name on so many things. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be magnanimous, magnanimous about it. I'll, I'll give the guy a fair shake, if only because I want comics to be good, even if I have to begrudgingly accept that the masses like him. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yeah yeah for me i first started recognizing his name when he was doing all those batman comics like i don't know 10 years ago because from what i remember he was kind of a protege of scott snyder and i'm not a scott mm-hmm. snyder fan don't really like scott snyder's comics too much so i think because of that association i was kind of naturally inclined to not really be interested in Tanyan's work either. And I do remember reading quite a few of his early Batman stuff. But I would also say, kind of like what you were saying, I really don't remember anything about those comics other than the fact that I didn't particularly enjoy them. But if you asked me what they were about or who drew them or anything about them, I couldn't tell you a single thing because it's, you know, it's just been that long where it's like, you know, you read some so many comics and there's bound to be stuff that just doesn't stick in your mind because it's just not memorable enough. Mm. Actually, I did want to add one thing. Um, I do remember one thing that he is associated with, and that is that he created the character punchline, which was supposed to be a modern, I guess, Harley Quinn. It's kind of his, his addition to the Batman mythos. And even though I didn't read any of those comics, I did think that was stupid. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. 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 I remember when Punchline came out, a lot of the speculators and key collectors were getting pretty hype over her. Yeah. And yeah, that I, I can't say I've read a comic book with Punchline in it. Because by that point, I pretty much bailed on Tanyan's work. So uh, I guess I don't really have too much to say about her other than as a in a vacuum. That is a pretty lame concept. Yeah, yeah. And maybe some people could say that we're not being fair to Punchline. If, you know, how can we dislike her as a concept if we haven't even read those books, but I just can't. <laughs> I can't for the life of me. I'm not saying that I wouldn't ever read a book with punchline in it. Um, you know, I, I may even do it just to affirm what I already believe, but uh, just purely based on optics, purely based on hype and the kind of people that do like her, I, I can say that she's not a character that I thought was had any promise whatsoever. <laughs> So what you think, man? Later this year, we do an episode on Joker War. Twenty twenty four, the year of Joker War. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was another Tanyan work that I read quite a while ago too, several years ago. It was one of his uh, non-superhero comics, but he did this three issue miniseries at boom called cognetic i think it was this kind of science fiction story 
But again, that was another comic where I found all three issues in a quarter bin and I was kind of pumped because, hey, it's all three at one time, you know, no real additional effort to search for the remaining issues. But I, I do remember reading it. I distinctly remember reading it. I will say I do not remember a single thing about the story. All I remember about the experience was that I didn't particularly <laughs> like it. And okay. it just went okay. into that pile of comics where, you know, I would give them away or something. So I think because of that and his Batman stuff, I wasn't super interested in in following his work, even though these past few years, the Tanyan hype train has just continued to grow and grow. He's done a lot of creator-owned stuff that gets a lot of acclaim and pretty good sales from what I understand. Stuff like Something is Killing the Children, House of Slaughter, you know. There's quite a few books that he's he's done recently. Uh, oh, The Department of Truth is another big one. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, James Tynion's just high prominence right now, and he's got his own studio and his own Substack, which is pretty big. Tiny Onion, you know, a play on his name, I suppose. But yeah, I've just never really been drawn to him because of those early experiences with his work. Right, but right. I will say earlier this year, I did borrow The Nice House on the Lake from the library, which is, I believe it's creator-owned, but it, it's published by DC's Black Label. I'm not really sure what their uh, authorship deal is there, but yeah, the Black Label published The Nice House on the Lake, and I did enjoy that. I thought that was a pretty good comic. It's more along the lines of something like World Tree, where it's it's a different take on the horror genre. Mm, mm. I don't know if it's something where I felt like I've got to go buy my own copy or anything, but there are two trades. It's 12 issues with hints of potentially a wider franchise to come because the story, it has an ending, but there's also like hints or potential of, you know, if he wanted to do more set in that world, he, he totally could. I don't know if there will be. I'm not sure if he announced anything yet. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know if I would feel the urge to buy my own copy of that. I read it once and appreciated it, enjoyed it. Uh, I'd probably honestly enjoy it more if I reread the whole thing in one sitting because there was a pretty big wait in between volume one and volume two. Um, just because I didn't wait until it was complete before reading it. But I, yeah, I think reading The Nice House on the Lake gave me some hope that I could uh, p- perhaps enjoy more Tanyan comics. I just yeah, haven't really gone back to his other creator-owned work. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you something about that? Yeah. So you pay a a lot more attention to comic book discourse than I do. Um, I think it's, it's a good way to kind of learn about what's, well, it's a good way to learn about what's popular. It's a good way to learn about what people are reading about. 
um, you know, introduces us to new writers and such. So I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, for the people who voice an, a, a genuine appreciation for Tinian and his work. Like, do you, have you noticed anything, what it is in particular about his work that they enjoy? Like, is, are there any statements that come up time and time and time and time again that might indicate what, why they like his work? I don't think I'm deep enough into the Tanyan discourse to be able to point to anything specific because if people are um, critiquing his comics or, you know, discussing his actual work, I haven't read that work. So whatever they would have to say about it would just be lost on me. Mm-hmm. I think all I really do know is that people generally like his work I mean, he's got a pretty big fan base. His Substack's real successful. And he's, you know, just kind of the guy who's known right now for being someone who can launch a creator-owned book and be pretty successful, you know? Like, there's no not much risk to a Tanyan book coming out. And he tends to seem to like to do these kind of horror or, like, science fiction or fantasy tinged horror kind of stories when he Mm. gets his chance Mm. to do his own stuff okay okay understandable yeah so it seems like that's kind of his favored mode of storytelling so not necessarily superheroic stuff even though he's written a ton of those for for dc but he seems to like to do stories that have some kind of horror element. Heck, even if you look at his uh, his, his bibliography, he's he's done DC comics where they fight vampires and stuff like that. So I don't know <laughs> if that's anything that <laughs> indicates where his interests lie. Right, right. Huh. All right. You know so what? I, guess I just realized what? I just realized there was something else from Tanyan that I I did have fun with. He wrote those Batman and Ninja Turtles crossover miniseries. Okay, okay. I never actually read those, so I can't really throw in my two cents. Uh, I imagine that they are kind of what you would expect them to be on on you know the good end of of that. Yeah, they're just loud, dumb, entertaining fun. It's just Batman and the Turtles crossing over, their worlds crossing over, and there's nothing particularly deep about them. The craftsmanship is just, you know, it's fine. There's nothing nothing particularly outstanding. Uh, It's just, yeah, it's just if you're a fan of the properties, it's there's something entertaining about seeing those two together. Mm, I, I probably right. wouldn't spend money on it, but I, I definitely borrowed all three of those miniseries from the library, and I borrowed the animated movie from the library too at one point. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You really got your fill of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Batman. <laughs> I did. I did. I'm not. I'm not so academic or pretentious to say that I can't enjoy something like that. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> okay. I'm down with the nice. people, dude. Yeah. I'm a regular you, guy. You have the youths. You have exactly. the peoples. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
guess since we're discussing Tinian, it would be it 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 would be right for us to discuss his contemporaries, just you know, so we have kind of an idea of where he is amongst you know uh, the other writers of equal notoriety within his field um mm -hmm. you know so uh you might if you could give us a few names of people that you might consider his contemporaries people that you would associate with this time period that he's working in yeah so this is a list of other comic book writers that we came up with before we started recording just trying to run through names of other people that either are they're either close to his age or they simply started being productive in comics around the same time period roughly so we we came up with names like joshua williamson tom king tom taylor donnie cates matthew rosenberg jed mckay Chip Zdarsky, Kyle Sarks, Simon Spurrier, Mark Russell, and Ailes Cott. Mm. Anyone else that I was forgetting? No, I mean, that sounds like a pretty solid list. I'm sure there are more. We didn't list everyone we could have, but in terms of people that we recognize, names that we see around a lot, um, those those are probably who I would lump him lump him with uh, in, in terms of the current era of comics. Yeah. Oh, another one I just thought of was Kelly Thompson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Actually, that opens up quite a few more than, I mean... Yeah, you uh, thought of others? I mean, like, what about, like, Ram V or Vita Elea? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Forgot yeah. about them. Yeah. So those are those are some of the names that I can just kind of pull off off the top of my head. But yeah. All right. So in comparison to his contemporaries, how do you think uh James Tinian the fourth stands up? Uh just based on what I've read, I'd probably say that he's marginally above average. Um but I don't think he's necessarily that's necessarily enough to put him in the field of just good writers. It, it might put him in the field of good enough writers. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But you know, like if we're talking about the high end of of writers in his same class, I'd probably rather read a Tom King um or a chip zdarsky or a Kyle starks simon spurrier mark russell ram v kelly thompson Vidalia. i'd probably read any of their books over you know in, in just a blind um side-by-side -side comparison if you just offered me one of those books from one of, and one of those writers right up next to his i'd probably read one of their books over Tom, uh, Tinian's books. Yeah, um, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, we are kind of old heads when it comes to comics. And I feel like sometimes it's easy to just stick to the writers that we've always enjoyed. But every year, mm -hmm. there's always a new crop of writers. Yeah. And 
the general comics buying reading public you know there's like ebbs and waves of popularity and and who's who's yeah, kind of the yeah. the hit writer and yeah who's getting a good amount of work from the big two and some of them end up doing a lot of their own notable creator own stuff as well yeah yeah that so, and yeah plus, it's hard to keep up with everything right right that and plus all of my favorite writers from the past are slowly being revealed to be to be sexual harassers <laughs> yeah so that is that is making it a little tough for me <laughs> we, we have to look for new writers to enjoy with the yeah new non-sexual harassy writers <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah anyways (laughs) you want to move on to the artist on the book fernando blanco or blanco Mm -hmm. not sure if i'm pronouncing it correctly but uh this is kind of the main thing that i've experienced with him or the first thing i've recognized his name from other comics but the other comic of his where I, I saw his name in the credits that I remember off the top of my head was this, it, it was, it's kind of obscure, but back around the time of the new 52 or right before the new 52, when flashpoint was happening, there were a bunch of flashpoint miniseries tie-ins. And one of the miniseries was this one called secret seven written by Peter Milligan. And that's really the only reason why I remember it because it's a Milligan comic and even though it's like this watered down version of Shade the Changing Man and other characters that would end up on the Justice League Dark, uh, the Secret Seven Flashpoint miniseries was where I saw Fernando Blanco's name. But from what I remember, he did the layouts on that comic. He didn't actually like do full pencils and inks or anything. So it was it was kind of tough. I don't really recognize his style when I look at World Tree. It's pretty much all new to me. Because the style in in that Secret Seven miniseries looked more like George Perez, because George Perez actually drew like the first issue and then the other issues had layouts by Fernando Blanco and I wanna say Scott Koblish did the finishes, but he did it in a way to kind of maintain visual consistency with George Perez. So if you can imagine George Perez's work, it really looks nothing like what we see in World Tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I have even less of an association with him because I don't recognize him from anything except for this. So yeah, I mean this really this entire experience reading this this trade has been a i guess eye opening or educational experience for me because i like i mentioned earlier um this is the first real tinyan work that i've read and you called him tinyan oh sure whatever uh <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first blanco work that i've read so uh, yeah yeah that's uh this is this is all I got. I do think that Blanco's art is probably the high point of the comic for me. And I think his storytelling is really strong. 
that's probably why he was a good artist to do layouts for that Secret Seven comic, just because his sense of storytelling and pacing is is consistent and gives good flow. When I look at World Tree, a lot of it uses this um, twelve like a twelve panel grid, and it's just crisp and clear storytelling all the way through. So I I definitely think that. He's got really solid fundamentals. Man's got chops. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have any other thoughts on other members of the creative team at all? Uh, unfortunately, I'd probably say that I don't because I don't really know who else worked on it. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Did wait, you wait, wait. No, I see this. Colors by Jordi Belair. So Jordi Belair is a name I do recognize. Yeah, we see her all the time. Yeah. yeah. So she's good. Um, letters by Aditya Bidikar. I feel like that's a familiar name too. Bidikar, that's pretty yeah. unique. But I can't for the life of me tell you what what uh what what else they've lettered. Um yeah, it says edits by Steve Fox with an E, Foxy, Steve Foxy, <laughs> and uh, Dylan Todd <laughs> with two Ds, so Dylan Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his family named themselves after Todd McFarlane. Yeah, even though I'm sure it's a family name that goes back generations before <laughs> Todd McFarlane even existed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, they they foresaw the coming of the Todd father, and they decided that in preparation of his arrival in the world of man, that they would name themselves to honor him, <laughs> so that when he was birthed, they would know who his disciples are. That's right. <laughs> that sounds horrifying. <laughs> yeah. That how's that for cosmic horror for you? <laughs> Uh, did you have any thoughts on, you know, any of the other people that worked on it? Because Jordi Belair like is probably the biggest one. Yeah. Yeah, because she's done a bunch of comics that we've either read or just stuff that we bought and we're sitting on because our unread piles are just getting out of control. Yeah, she's a big name, and I, I think she does excellent work, so... Seeing her name in the credits is definitely reassuring, no matter what comic it is, because she's got a pretty wide color palette where she doesn't, you know, she's not known for using the same style for everybody's line art. She changes it up to, you know, complement the actual story. So, yeah, got a lot of respect for her. Yeah, she definitely uses a pretty unique color palette in this book. Um especially to convey, I guess, the digital age. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of greens going on in here. Yeah. So she she knows, she gets mood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shall we dive into our spoiler-full discussion? Let's get to it. Let's hop to it. How do you want to start so, this? I guess we can just kind of go into, we gave the general synopses of what it's about. I guess we can just kind of go into what our thoughts are 
um, yeah, if you don't mind giving us your general sense of what you read. I think I would say I enjoyed and appreciated the comic. I think it's a good comic. However, I wouldn't say it grabbed me in a way mm. where I feel extremely compelled to continue reading. Like, I thought it was well-crafted, you know? Like, the concept was well-executed. I wouldn't say it's, like, my favorite concept or my favorite premise or anything. But for what it is, I, I think it's well-executed with, uh, you know, solid storytelling and, and the artwork, especially. There's, yeah, there's just a lot... Aesthetically speaking, it's it's like just yeah, it pleases me visually from from just that standpoint, and and I think that the the pacing of it and how things are slowly revealed does build up good suspense. Mm. I just wouldn't mm. really feel the need, like yeah, I guess I just wouldn't really feel the need to like go out of my way to seek out volume two or anything but yeah i don't i don't know if that if, i don't know if that is a condemnation of it but that's just how i feel after reading the first volume okay i think i think i'd mirror that um i don't know if i'd go so far as to i guess if we're gonna like try to slice this into degrees i don't know if i'd go so far as to say that i like liked it quite as much as you but i thought it was a fine comic um i don't think like you i don't think i am in a position where i have any special love for it uh in terms of like the plot um i don't know uh like when i stop and think about it uh that whole the whole basis of the plot being this dark internet that exists um, you know, within the ether of the unknown that is being held back, uh, that is holding back these forces that will corrupt the entirety of humanity, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe on paper that sounds like that could be a promising premise, but there was just something about what I actually read that maybe didn't fill me with a sense of excitement or urgency to seek it out or to, to find out how Tinian's version of it comes to an end, you know? Yeah. 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 That's a lot more magnanimous than I was expecting from you. I thought you were about to crap on it. <laughs> uh i mean the night's still young so <laughs> i mean if if you hate the comic just say you hate the comic you don't have to mirror what i said i don't think i actually do hate the comic i'm just apathetic to it oh okay okay yeah yeah so you know it's like going out with a girl and telling her i don't hate you i just don't feel anything for you you've said that to a girl i mean sure <laughs> <laughs> what i didn't say that i hated her <laughs> why am i There's the no monster in this scenario <laughs> yeah don't paint me to be a monster 
I'm many things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess since I've opened it up, we can talk about the plot a little bit, right? Like, you, you, you mentioned earlier uh, in your uh, assessment that it wasn't your favorite kind of plot. I'm kind of curious. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear more on that from you. I guess I would say I'm not the biggest fan of horror in general. Mm. Like that's probably a genre that I'm not extremely interested in no matter what medium, you know, whether we're talking movies or TV shows or or even prose novels and stuff like that. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy it at all, because I've, I've, there are definitely uh, horror stories over the years that I have enjoyed in various mediums. But I think mm-hmm. when it comes to horror in comic books specifically, that's always a tough sell for me. Yeah. And I, I think I it's that. I think it's because the way that comics are, a lot of the usual trappings of horror are kind of more difficult to pull off because when I think about horror in a movie or a TV show, one of those mediums, horror often um, is built up through a lot of suspense and and eventually there's you know like the jump scare or something and that that's usually not something i like too much but mm. i can understand it and comprehend it as an element of the genre the, yeah. the whole jump scare kind of thing but i think there's also like other things that play into it like the sound and the audio um music and and things that build up that are part of the buildup, but there are also ways to tell a story, horror story that that aren't necessarily predicated on excessive gore or jump scares. Because I think about mm. something like like Get Out from from Peel. What's his first yeah. name? I forget. Jordan Peel. Jordan Peel. Yeah. Because mm. because that movie, I don't remember it really having jump scares. Maybe it, it does. I just forgot. But I felt like the horror in that was more because of the situation that the character was in and the slow revelation of what he was involved in. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was what made it scary. That was what made it memorable and what helped it resonate because it, it also, you know, had additional commentary and, and story beyond the simple trappings of the, of the scares. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I think add- about, oh. Oh, yeah. What were you saying? No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I thought you were done with your thought. Please oh, finish. And then I was going to say, when it comes to prose novels, I feel like prose novels tend to strike the most fear in me when it comes to horror, just because it it's it feels more legitimate or feels like it's more genuine horror, because the horrifying thing in a good, scary book is that you spend so much time with the character that you actually care about the character when you care about the character and that character is in danger, then that's when your pulse kind of races when 
the thrills start to happen and or the suspense continues to build but it's because you care about the character and you know your imagination kind of does the rest and that's that's pretty tough to do in a comic mm. it's, it's tough to do that kind of stuff in a comic because typically in comics we don't really spend a whole ton of time in the interiority of a single character or people t- you know usually just don't tell comic book stories in that way so you don't have the same uh i guess emotional connection or the empathy to really feel what the character is feeling and then when it comes to like the jump scares or the imagery or whatever it's not really the same when you see it on the printed page i feel like yeah that like it's it's not the same like you can get to a the end of a of a page on the right side, like a right side page of the book of a comic. And, you know, you'll have like a, uh, a panel where the guy, like the character turns around because he senses something behind him. And then you flip to the next page and then there's like a double pla- double page splash of something scary jumping out at him. It's not really the mm-hmm. same feeling, you know, it's not really going to really shock or, or scare you at all or yeah, hit you yeah. anywhere. It's just going to be, you know, a flashy picture that you can examine. Yeah. So yeah. The, the tools are, are different. You've yeah, got to, yeah. like, with, yeah, with comics, it's, it's, it's tougher to tell those traditional kinds of horror stories. I think you have to like do something. Cause typically when I think of horror comics, there's like two main things that I think of. And one of them is like the old school EC horror comics where there's just some kind of twist at the end that makes it kind of creepy. And I do enjoy those because those are clever. Those are fun. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're not like the most impactful, but you know, I can still find something to appreciate about them, especially if the art's pretty good. And then Mm -hmm. the second thing I think that comics can do well is really crazy, vibrant imagery like when you think about a Junji Ito comic, you see stuff there that you wouldn't see in a movie because people aren't creative enough to like come up with that on their own, you know? Yeah. Like There's just yeah. like some really weird, creepy stuff that you see in a Junji Ito comic that yeah. you don't really see elsewhere. For you know, that's just an example of a, an artist that I think does horror pretty well. Yeah, and I do think that the additional thing about Junji Ito is he tends to delve into specific kinds of horror that can be i guess conveyed on the page uh and that can be disturbing so um i forget what the name of it is but there's this kind of horror that exists this fear of like repeating patterns Mm. so um there's a specific name for that kind of fear but um but Junji Ito tends to do a lot of that where he'll draw things where you can see like the pores on something on a person's face or on a person's skin. And the pores are so repetitive and so plentiful that it just kind of makes your stomach churn when you look at it. Right. Tripophobia. But, I just looked it up. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, there's there's other kinds of existential dread that he's able to communicate through his art that isn't necessarily so much about the jump scare as much as it is about 
evoking a sense of disgust in you you know yeah a sense yeah. of unease and he's really quite good at that but yeah uh, like i i was just gonna echo what you were saying about um horror comics and i think that in this particular case maybe you could look at world tree as you know a science fiction adventure comic but i do think that there's a lot of overlap between science fiction adventure and horror and i think looking at what he was trying to do with world tree it does feel like there he's tapping into um kind of the modern day version of cosmic horror except instead of that sort of eldritch lovecraftian horror of the unknown the unknown exists on the internet right so it's 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 the idea that there is a mirror internet that exists and on this on the other side of this mirror internet there is some sort of force that is trying to invade our world and it's driving people crazy and causing them to do violent harm to other people right and yeah i i'd happen to agree like it's a pretty hard thing to do in comics it's a hard thing to capture that sense of dread or fear and i don't know that tinian necessarily has the chops to do it i feel like if junji ito had done this comic we definitely would have felt just something in the pit of our stomach when when this was happening right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the way that he does it it's i think he does it in the sort of contemporary western way of doing horror or you know the the the, the conventional way of doing horror which is oh it drove people crazy and they did violent stuff isn't that creepy isn't that isn't yeah. that disturbing and that's yeah. It's, it really kind of leaves me feeling empty. So, you know, it's hard to... It's it's hard to ignore this book as a horror book because that is the first vibe that I get from it. And if I was to grade it based on whether it is able to evoke those sensations of horror in me, like, just by that measurement, it doesn't really live up to it, you know? Right, um, yeah. Like yeah. when I think about other horror comics that we've covered on our podcast, like the thing I think about is Blood on the Tracks by mm. Shuzo Oshimi. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. One, that's a good you one. Know, that one could also be considered more of a psychological thriller, but I found more I found myself more horrified reading that comic than reading some of uh than reading World Tree. Yeah, yeah. And even when we go back and look at things like those old EC comics, um, I think we have to acknowledge that there's different kinds of horror at work. Yeah. So there's, there is definitely the kind of horror that's meant to scare you, but there's also a kind of horror that's meant to be fun as well, right? That's mm -hmm. just supposed to maybe titillate the outer edges of your sense of fear and i think those ec comics tend to do that where if you look at tales from the crypt or um you know tales from uh the was the crypt keeper a different one there's uh, tales from the crypt i forget what the yeah well regardless so there there are several titles within um 
within that uh the within the EC umbrella of comics that do horror and the other there oh, is, was the other one you were thinking of the vault of horror yeah 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 vault of horror right right and there there are a few more right but even then there's something comical about it when you see the host of the comic when you see you know the crypt keeper or the vault keeper there's there's a jokiness to them even though they're trying to be scary. Like I was thinking yeah. about the yeah. HBO Tales from the Crypt series. Um, and I thought that captured the the sense, the, the essence of the Crypt Keeper perfectly because he's the host of this show, but he's always like giving you these pretty bad puns and making bad jokes, all while trying to tell this schlocky horror story. And... Yeah, I guess if I was more easily scared or if I was younger, it it would be scary because of the gore stuff. But I do appreciate it because I understand that on the flip side of it, it's appealing to more of the fun within horror than the just pure horror of it. And yeah, World Tree those, doesn't... those stories are told with a heavy dose of self-awareness, I would say. Exactly, exactly. And World Tree doesn't seem to, it, 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 in reading it, I don't get the sense that it's trying to do that, right? It's, it's very it's serious. Very much, it's serious, it's playing it straight, and if, it's, if that's the case, then I have no choice but to judge it by that standard. And as just a straight horror, it just doesn't really do it for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I was thinking yeah. about the other... Tanyan work I read, Nice House on the Lake. And I'm trying to think why I like that one more than Roll Tree. What makes Nice House work better for me than Roll Tree? Because Nice House, it's like the concept of Nice House on the Lake is that uh, a dozen people who are connected by one mutual friend from their past, they're invited to the titular nice house on the lake. But while they're there, they discover that they're trapped there. Um, I guess they can leave the, they can literally leave the house, but they're only able to venture out around the property. So there's a lake there and some foresty areas and, and stuff like that. So they, they've got like a small area that they can uh, explore, but the reason why they are trapped there is because the rest of the world has been destroyed and the friend that brought them all together, he's actually part of this alien invasion force. It's like not super well clarified for us. We just have to like take him at his word for it. But basically he tells everybody that the world is destroyed and or in the process of being destroyed and these people, these friends of his are basically the last remnant of humanity and they're going to live, uh, they'll have access to everything they want because of the technology that the main guy, that the main friend is using. He's able to provide them with anything that they need so they'll never run out of food. They can have access to just almost anything that they need as long as it's not going to like allow them to to leave this place 
So it's a story about these 12 people, not all of whom know each other too well. They're just connected by the one guy. And they're trying to like figure out what they can do in this situation. So it, it puts a group of different but regular people who all have different life experiences and different job skills and, and knowledge puts them in this place where they, they're stuck in this twisted premise and it becomes a psychological horror about how they react to the situation, how they respond to what's going on and if there's anything that they can do to either get out of there or fix things. So that's where the the suspense is. And I don't know, I guess maybe on some level that appeals to me a bit more in terms of a uh, conceit than Roll Tree does. Mm. But yeah, that story worked a little bit better for me in terms of giving me those feelings of uh, psychological horror because we, I think that comic does help us understand and feel for the characters a little bit better than this one. But there's this, a similarity between them, I've noticed, because World Tree also has uh, this concept of Gabriel gathering the different friends that he knew from the past. And you know mm. that they haven't seen each other in a long time. So there's a little bit of tension between the people themselves. But they mm. also know that they've got to kind of work together in order to try and halt the the undernet from taking over and wreaking its havoc on the real world. Yeah, yeah. I do definitely see that element of it where Gabriel, you know, sees the news about this act of violence happening and he realizes oh, I got to get the crew back together, you know, because this group of friends, it's its very much like It or something like that for, uh, by Stephen King where, um, or Stranger Things where, uh, you know, we got to get this group of friends with a deep, dark secret together to deal with something from their past. And I think part of... So you mentioned at the top of the podcast that initially we only read that first issue. Mm -hmm. And I think if we had proceeded to do this episode only having read that first issue, I probably would have liked it even less because I never really got the sense in that first issue what their relationship to each other really was. Um, I never really got the sense that there was any sort of a relationship other than they worked on this thing together and now that they have to deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'd say about like two or three issues in, you get to see a little bit more of like the, the interactions between them. And even then, like I didn't necessarily feel super moved by the relationship that did exist between all of them. Um, yeah. Maybe some some of the characters' interactions were ones that I either enjoyed or gleaned something from. Um, there's this one point later where I think her name was Amanda. Is there someone named Amanda? Yes, I believe so. 
Yeah. Um, there's this one scene where she and I forget what the other character's name is, but they're they're on a mission essentially. They're they're out in the middle of gathering um, you know, whatever it is that they need. And she starts talking about she starts telling um her partner about what it's like having four kids and dating at this age in her life. And she talks about how, you know, uh, she wishes that she could forego all the niceties of dating and just kind of jump directly into the cold, hard, honest truth of dating at that age and after having four kids, which involves talking about the changes in your body and the changes in, like, her personal sex drive and, like, how she's, what, you know, what she's really looking for is someone who will share a connection with her that lasts outside of um, the physical act of sex, right? Mm -hmm. And then her partner goes into this uh, entire... After that, he she asks him, you know, what it is he's looking for out of his relationships. And he goes, I just want someone who will buy clothes for me, you know, someone who will look at me and see something in me that they think is beautiful and will buy clothes for me and you know as as a extension of that appreciation and i i thought that was probably the most uh interesting interaction up to that point for me anyways do you remember yeah. that conversation yeah i remember that the other character's name is named Darren yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, that's right before they go into that house where Fausta snooping around, but she accidentally opens up or she uh, gets on a computer and starts looking at the undernet and it starts mm-hmm. affecting her. Yeah. Yeah. So that's towards the end of issue two. Mm. But I remember that scene because it's an extended conversation scene and it's mostly with the 12 panel grid that. That uh, Blanco seems to favor or that they've chosen to go with for the series. I mean, there's occasions where they'll break that grid or, you know, have one of the tiers be one long horizontal panel. But Mm. I think just because of the way that it's paced, it's really well done. It is something where a lesser artist would make that pretty tough to go through. Like, it would be a slog if. David Finch or somebody had to draw a scene like that, right? <laughs> right. I think right. we were talking about him like in a pretty recent episode too. <laughs> but I guess he's Might just our been... punching bag. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that we've got multiple villains within our podcast because <laughs> we can only rag on T Mac for so long, right? <laughs> right, right. T Mac or Chris Claremont or <laughs> uh, I don't know who else we got. <laughs> Scott Lobdell. Yeah, it's good to switch up our villains. Scott Snyder, <laughs> even. <laughs> the two of them should get together and work on something. The Scots. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that Blanco draws this scene, it's it's quite engaging. You know, the characters are having this conversation, but they're also clearly doing stuff. You see them pouring the gasoline around the house while they're having this conversation and they're kind of like 
you know, moving around the space and then they see a pair of swings in the in the front yard and they sit down and continue the conversation. But anytime you have like a close up of a face, you know, the expression is well drawn and it actually looks like people are the people are reacting to each other and the things that they're saying. It's it's just good storytelling, man. Yeah, yeah. I do think that was kind of the highlight of uh, that issue up to that point. I will also note that later towards the end of the book, um, there's a fast forward point and you see that there's a jump in time to the future where the book becomes, the world becomes this post-apocalyptic wasteland. So it makes me wonder if that's kind of his pet theme <laughs> based on what you said about uh the nice <laughs> the nice lake, lake nice house lake. on the lake nice house on the lake uh you know friends getting together only to witness the end of the world <laughs> yeah yeah it, it could very well be uh i was just gonna say i do think that that shifts the tone a little bit away from the more horror aspect of the book to a more i don't know in my mind it just becomes more of a Science sci-fi fiction. action yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah, since you brought it up, I was actually just about to mention that myself because when I saw the uh, the time skip sequence in, I think it's the fifth issue, that actually lowered my interest in the series, to be honest. Yeah. We go to yeah, 2049, right? we skip 25 years into the future, and yeah, it's this post-apocalyptic wasteland where... Yeah. There's a bunch of marauders who look like they've been infected by the same stuff that messed up Sammy and turned her into a crazy killer. And now are they like giants too? Like they look like they were bigger than your average person or something. I might have been misinterpreting that. Yeah, possibly. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. But I'm looking at that one panel early on, like on the second page or the third page of issue five, and that's kind of what it it looks like. But I'm not entirely sure. It's just seeing this future scene, it kind of makes it feel, I don't know. I don't know why that makes me less interested in reading it. But that definitely, I would say, I would point to that as something that lowered my interest in following the series. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I, I couldn't put my thumb on it either. I think because the shift is away from the potential dread that does exist right which is the dread of it's that whole idea of before we gave a name and a face to whatever this evil force is that exists in the undernet right um we can still we still have the power of our imagination to fill those gaps in and that's the thing that makes it kind of horrifying but when you show us when you pull the curtain back and you show us that ah see they're just these giant uh you know giant monster like giant people killers or whatever like it's like attack on titan or something (laughs) yeah yeah it's less interesting it's it's not as scary as anything we could have come up with. And I think it's also just that element of it where it becomes, oh, this story is about them saving the future. Like it it, it almost feels like Terminator now, where it's like, oh, they're they're it's him, the story yeah. of him in the future, like 
raising a resistance and doing all this and that. And it's more action oriented rather than centered around the sense of actual dread and fear that I had initially thought that we were going to be exploring. Yeah, that's right. Because I think the if they had tried to focus more on or capture that feeling of of dread and cosmic horror, that would make sense to me because it's like this whole idea of the undernet is like a technological equivalent of like a Cthulhu thing or something, right? Yeah, like some yeah, some kind exactly. of monster with tentacles reaching to grab you into the void or some yeah. something like that. Except in this case, it's just like the really dark underbelly of the internet, which in and of itself also could make for There's, a pretty potent metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, now that I think about it some more as we're talking about it, I think that's probably one of the things if, if the story had leaned into that a little bit more, I probably would have been more into it. Just the idea of, of it being like a commentary about something related to the internet or technology. Like I was asking myself as I was, as I was reading it, is this a story that's about the harmful nature of the internet or the harmful nature of memes or something, or I don't know, is it trying to show us something dark about technology but I think after reading the first five issues, it didn't really feel like that, you know, like at least not in any meaningful way. It's just mm. technology is scary in like a, a kind of a generic way, but mm. it's not really saying anything about, I guess, it's, it doesn't really feel like it's commenting on anything in the real world that we associate with the Internet or am mm. I just missing something? I, I do feel like there are certain points in World Tree where they were discussing the effects of what the undernet was doing to people and how like it just kind of ruined their self-esteem and it just made them feel this sense of despair. When I was reading those lines, it did make me think that it was kind of their backdoor way of describing what the internet actually does to people mm, okay. but it's just a very like exaggerated version of that right whereas you know there's there's a scene i forget where it is where they're showing all the news reports of everything that's going on once the undernet is leaking into the world and they're showing they were talking about how young men are mostly affected and how they're they're going on these violent rampages oh, yeah. and it just made me think of like well, that's kind of what the internet is doing now by radicalizing young men to become, you know, incel shooters or whatever, right? That's true, yeah. So, so it's not entirely without some sort of commentary on the internet, but it's just that same, I guess, those same problems that we have internet pushed to its most exaggerated degree in order to make a statement. Yeah. So that, that's what I thought. I guess that's okay then, because that's how the power of metaphors usually works in genre fiction. So, yeah, I guess I just had to step back and, and think about it or have you point out specific examples, because I don't really remember that too clearly. Maybe I was just reading it too fast, didn't catch it. Yeah, um, like I'm trying to look for it, but... I mean, you do remember the scenes I'm describing, right? Where 
as as the undernets bleeding out into the world they're just showing a bunch of different newscast reports talking about like what's yeah. happening to to everyone um yeah i'm looking at that and it's in the fifth issue yeah yeah it's another one of those scenes where i feel like it's meant to be horrifying because you're just seeing scene after scene of people getting brutally depravity murdered violence yeah yeah of depravity yeah. um but i guess in terms of the limitations of comics telling this kind of story with a horror slant to it i wouldn't say it comes across as gratuitous or anything like there's still something clearly shocking about these scenes of violence even though they're just one panel at a time and they're you know they're all different like you'll have one panel where it's a guy stabbing a girl in the stomach mm. and then another panel where a guy's shoving his thumbs into another dude's eyeballs and then yeah. you see someone mm-hmm. eviscerated on the next panel so it's like a series of different acts of violence being committed throughout uh a couple of pages but on some level it doesn't really feel maybe I'm, I'm just desensitized or something. Cause it's like, I'm just yeah. looking at gore or, you know, just shocking stuff right now. And yeah. And like, that's supposed to be enough to, to like get me to understand how awful the world tree is, or, you know, that's mm. supposed to get me to feel the fear. And I think, it's quite possible that for other readers, maybe seeing something like this would actually draw those feelings out. Like maybe you see stuff like that and it would make you feel sick inside just to, to look at the picture of a guy who sliced open another guy's torso and is just playing with his intestines or something like there is something incredibly graphic and shocking about it. Uh, But I guess, for me, it was more just like, okay, intellectually, I recognize that they're just trying to show me a lot of violence and and crime and and killings to illustrate how serious this threat is. Mm. I I'd also say that again, this goes to another limitation of these kinds of horror stories where a lot of the times people feel like the thing that makes something scary is the gore. So by that logic, increasing the level of gore should make it more scary. Yeah. And a lot of the time that's what leads to a lot of just gratuitous gore and horror scenes that might be kind of gross to look at, but I don't find particularly scary either. And I think about, I watched this movie, I didn't even finish it, but I I watched it like maybe a few months ago and it was, it's a B movie horror uh, called The Terrifier, I think. And it's, it's kind of that subgenre of like creepy clowns. And (laughs) it's about this like creepy clown that goes around murdering a bunch of uh people within this community and i just remember this one scene where this clown just absolutely like mutilates this girl and it goes on for like a really long time and it's not something that i found particularly 
scary but after a while i just felt gross because it just felt like it was reveling in the violence right Mm -hmm. and yeah that just doesn't really do it for me i like i think of horror that really makes me feel uneasy and i think of something like hereditary which i saw like i think two years ago and that's another horror movie that kind of exists in the same vein as uh get out by jordan peele in the sense that it's it's horror based on a very like specific existential kind of fear it's Mm -hmm. um like i don't want to give too too much away about the movie but it's it's a it's the story of this family that is slowly being taken apart by their internal turmoils and just the forces that are working to pull this family apart and there's there's definitely like gore in the movie right but Mm -hmm. i think so much of the horror comes from the the ideas behind it as well as the sense of mood and ambiance that they're able to capture and you know when i'm looking at these scenes in um in world tree it's just not the same because it just feels like all they're really doing is showing you more violence as a shorthand for horror it doesn't really feel like yeah they're really building a sense of ambiance ambiance or decor uh <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really feel like they're giving you a sense of ambiance it doesn't really feel like they're building up that sense of fear um that is supposed to like reach you in like your higher consciousness right yeah yeah so yeah like on some level the fear would be more palpable if it's the characters that we that we've been learning about if they're the ones who were in danger yeah i think that would definitely ramp up that kind of fear and there is that whole twist at the end when gabriel gets killed mm-hmm. like that's kind of i guess that's kind of surprising but I, I thought that was a pretty interesting story choice because up to that point he's been kind of built up as the leader of the group that's going to fight against the forces of the undernet but now mm-hmm. He's gone. So what's everybody else gonna do? And yeah, I'll, I, w- I will say that that does uh, make the story more intriguing. It's pretty fascinating story choice, and it's something that it it kind of helps it break the mold of being kind of uh, I don't know predictable. Yeah. Well, but I'd also add that. <laughs> it's sort of undercut by the very last page of the trade or the last couple of pages where they flash forward again to 2049 and you know you see them in the future and uh in hoopla it's page 160 right and you see them in the future and there are scenes from different parts of the past that are sprinkled in there with uh the future scene right and i do think that it's an interesting page because as much as we hate like Zack Snyder and you know, how the the way he does things, I do think (laughs) that it's kind of interesting for them to do 
the future as this weird sort of sepia tone. Well, I don't even know if that's sepia tone because like the 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 one the panel in the past where it's them discovering the world tree is kind of in this orange hue. Yeah. And then they're in this like more gray tan sort of tone in the future in 2049. And the present where uh is his name Gabriel? Which one? The guy who died? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where Gabriel where like they're rocking um Gabriel's, you know, dead body and they're just kind of clutching him. Like that's in green, right? Yeah. So yeah, so it's undercut by this scene because one, there's something funny about the image of one of them in the future wearing sunglasses. Yeah. Um, that just feels like so 80s. Uh, maybe it's like a nod to Terminator or something, but it's like, yeah, you know how it's the future. He's got different colored hair and he's wearing sunglasses and he's got a leather jacket. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And then it's undercut even further because the very last page of it is, you know, uh, I forget which character this is who's, who's in the future. I think it's Ellison, right? So it's Ellison in the future. Apparently, he's the only one left, and he's spray painting on this uh, on the ground. The truth is on WorldTree.net, and it just feels very sci-fi actiony at this point, right? So even yeah. though. Uh, you get the sense that, oh, okay, he died. So there's this sense of fear and um, unpredict unpredictableness to it for them to jump to the future and just turn it into this, yeah, we're we're gonna find a way to rise up and overthrow the, you know, the giant robots or the marauder people or whatever they are. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it just makes it. That that I think that was the point also for me where I was just like, oh, that's what this is gonna be. Did you try visiting WorldTree.net? Nah. Did you? Yeah, I did. What'd you find? You can click to log in, but then you have to input a password, and I didn't know the password, so I gave up. Okay. Okay. It's a it's a heck of a marketing. <laughs> marketing uh scheme or marketing tactic i guess <laughs> maybe there's a yeah. clue in the comic that tells you the password sure i don't know if i'm like that interested in it but sure <laughs> yeah it was just another barrier for me so i didn't really yeah feel too we're disappointed creatures. that i couldn't see yeah we're creatures of of least resistance so the the very second something anything gets difficult or complicated we give up <laughs> yeah um one thing that i forgot to bring up earlier but at the very beginning of the first issue there's this opening epigraph and it's a quotation from a harlan ellison short story the quotation is let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. And that's from a short story that Ellison wrote called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. I've never read the story. It's a pretty famous one. I remember they even made a, a video game based on that story at some point in the 90s. Never played it. But 
Harlan Ellison is another one of those famous writers. And I guess reading that quotation at the beginning of the story kind of gives a little bit of a flavor maybe, or perhaps even a framework for what Worldtree is trying to get at. I'm not sure if I have identified, I don't know if I've identified what that actually is, but it was interesting to think about because right now it just feels like the story is really about the hatefulness of people and how people can be awful. Mm. Yeah, I, I I looked at that too. And I don't think I've had the time to really think about how that applies to what Tinian's trying to say. Um, I think the only thing that I could come up with is if the internet is this tool that has become um if it has become this thing that is just used to degrade our sense of self uh, like if it was meant to connect us to other people and all we really learned from it is how much we hate other people <laughs> then <laughs> maybe that. In, in that sense um that quote probably might make some sense um but yeah i haven't really thought about it beyond that yeah, it it does seem like it's got some significance because even one of the main characters is named Ellison. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I feel like there's got to there's got to be some intentionality behind that. I just haven't exactly mm. figured it out. Hmm. Did you want to talk about the art a little bit? Were there like any particular scenes or images that jumped out at you? things that you spent a little time admiring a little more yeah i'd say as a whole the art was pretty outstanding um mentioned earlier that there was a pretty big commitment to the 12 panel grid but it's also not a slavish reliance on it so you'll see them break that uh pretty pretty often pretty regularly and those 2049 future scenes don't use it either but the the majority of it you can kind of see like the skeleton of the 12 panel grid even when they don't go with it there's still usually like four tiers on on the page um and i think that blanco does a really good job with uh with detail and he he makes the world immersive because even with the 12 panels on a page, you still get enough background detail to get all the information you need. He doesn't really skimp on the backgrounds. So you're just immersed in the place that the characters are in. And when he does open up and when you see bigger panels or cityscapes or bigger panels with interior scenes, those are pretty impressive too because he draws everything and you get this real vibrant sense of place and yeah I, I would also say like the pacing is really well done i was taking some notes on the on the first issue in particular because for you know for the past few days that was all we really had to to work with but i just remember in the in the first issue opening up it starts off with the scene of Ellison's brother 
going on this murder spree. And yeah, there's just something about that, about those sequences that are kind of intense. Those didn't really feel gratuitous. And I, I think it's because of the 12 panel pacing. It's like he opens up or he knocks on a door of a, an elderly couple's home. And then he shows the man his phone. And there's like this really interesting flickering effect to demonstrate the, I guess, the power of the internet or, I don't know. It's it's like we can't really see ourselves what's on the screen, but through the effect that Blanco draws in front of the the man's face, there's like this weird flickering that I guess holds him still long enough for the killer to slash his throat with a knife. Mm. And and like that scene to me where he he does that to the man and then walks into the into the house and then does the same thing to and starts stabbing the the old lady who lives there like to me that that was probably more horrifying than some of the other scenes that we've seen later in the story just because this opening scene is very purposefully paced and i think it builds up the the tension and the the intensity of what's actually happening mm. what do you think of the art I like the way that he draws the people. I I think that his figure drawing is pretty good. Everyone looks different enough for the most part. I do think that there were times that I got a little confused between Ellis and the Japanese guy. I thought they both kind of looked Asian to me, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Yoshi, uh, I think that's, that's his name. Yoshi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and it is a thing where there are a lot of names being thrown around. So I wasn't always, uh, especially when you're jumping back and forth in time, um, you're not really sure. I wasn't, unless I was like paying super close attention, I wasn't really sure like who was who. Uh, uh, like it took me a while of reading before I was like, oh, okay, I, I kind of got this. Okay. Yeah, and I feel like um, they recognize that there's a bunch of characters because they're constantly reminding us of people's names. Like they have like mm. the character when we go to a new scene, they'll often yeah have the name of the character in really big print just so we can yeah remember who that is. I do think that was useful. That was helpful, and I did appreciate that. The other thing I was gonna say is so when we read that first issue, um, if we had read that first issue, it it would have left us without a lot of context because once we read the trade, there were additional pages at the very front of the book yeah that i think helped to give me at least a better idea of who the characters were and what their relationship to each other was uh because i remember reading the first issue of it last night and i got it i got what i was reading i i you know i was able to process it but i i don't think i like fully wrapped my head around like who was who and you know um again just what their dynamics were with one another but once once i read the the earlier page it it did clarify it for me a little bit it gave me a little more structure to follow so yeah i i, I don't know where those earlier pages come from because when you look at the um the credits or when you look at the what the trade paperback contains it doesn't say anything like oh this contains 
um, materials from like Free Comic Book Day or something like that. It just says, oh, it contains materials from issues one through five, originally collected in issues one through five of World Tree. So, yeah, that was yeah. an interesting choice. I don't know uh, what they were doing. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It's it's seven pages of introducing Gabriel to us, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it is it is nice. I didn't really feel like it was essential or anything, but it's like a good uh, little addition. I guess I wasn't super concerned about like what Gabriel was up to. Uh, in the days leading ahead to this, just because I think the later issues do give enough context to help us understand that he's this really successful tech guy. And yeah, like all the other characters had that shared past. So, but it's nice to have it there for completion's sake. Hmm. Wherever it came from. Yeah, yeah um let's see i guess we can talk about the dialogue a little bit too um yeah i i thought the dialogue was fine i i you know just in terms of how everybody talked to each other it sounded natural i don't i don't think there was anything in particular that jumped out at me as oh that was exceptionally clever or anything like that but you know his people sounded realistic and I suppose that's enough. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't do the uh he doesn't do puns like Brian Azarello or somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not punny. He's his his characters aren't particularly witty or anything. He does yeah, he doesn't really write witty kind of characters like a Brian K. Vaughn yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Like well, okay, here's one thing that I will point to and as something that did jump out at me um there's this point where i forget which issue it is but there's a point in the story where they begin to explain like i think in around issue three they begin to explain what the undernet is and the workings of it and when they were talking about it I do think that there were flourishes of other writers that I've seen. I feel like it kind of reminded me of Grant Morrison or Warren Ellis in terms of just the wild science terminology that he was using to describe uh, this dark undernet that exists uh, as a mirror to the internet, right? But even though he was discussing it in terms that are pretty wild and out there i feel like i had seen people like warren ellis and grant morrison and granted warren ellis and, and grant, warren ellis and grant morrison are kind of the top tier examples of this but when i think of something like the invisibles or planetary where um well let's take planetary as an example where warren ellis uh discusses something like the bleed or he discusses the way that magic works the way that science works this these science cities there's a poetry almost to how he discusses it but Mm -hmm. i don't really get that sense i feel like tinian is kind of 
edging on on what on how those other writers sound but it's not quite there it's not quite as evocative as how as the it's not quite as evocative as the way that other writers have discussed the science in their books you know and grant morrison yeah. is especially another example of this where there are times when you read any of his works and he goes into the meta science of it all like i have to actually stop and like read it several times in order to, to like fully grasp it <laughs> and even then i'm not really really getting it but when i read it when i read tinian's explanation for what the undernet was i was like oh okay i get it i got it in one go you know yeah so yeah i think his dialogue is natural which makes the story-driven exposition scenes sound like people are having a regular conversation. Like, it's it's realistic in that sense. And I guess it's just one of those things where it's a matter of taste. If you prefer your stories to have realistic dialogue that sounds like actual people are saying it, or would you prefer dialogue that's more stylized or or dialogue that's more clever and sounds like it's coming from somebody you know, like not necessarily real people usually aren't as witty as a Brian K. Vaughn character. Real people usually well, aren't as clever as a Brian Azzarello character, you know, firing off puns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's why I hate real people. Yeah, exactly. They're boring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, They're boring. But, they don't provide me any utility or value. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes you you prefer your stories to have more entertaining dialogues. It doesn't have to be realistic or natural as long as it sounds good, as long as it sounds engaging. And there's different ways to engage people. And, and I think I think Tanyan's style is more sound natural. You know, to to not really worry about trying to impress the reader with his wit, but he's he's just I guess writing in a more workmanlike kind of tone where people sound like real people uh they don't necessarily sound like people i'd want to get to know or anything but they're just yeah. it's it's natural and i think that's straightforward it's fine yeah 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 it's not but bad it's just it's, it's just, it's just uh, a choice either that or yeah a limitation of the author <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i still think he's better than a lot of writers who speak in who who tend to write in a straightforward tone like i think of someone like rosenberg or jed mckay or whatever and they are so plain in how they speak that there's there's really nothing interesting being said there right even even when they're trying it it just it reeks of zero effort <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then you can go the opposite way where some people try too hard to be clever and funny and it ends up just being super cringy like I think about Scott Lobdell, yeah. you know? It's like yeah. the guy's trying so hard to to write jokes or to be amusing that the dialogue doesn't it doesn't sound realistic, it doesn't sound clever, it's just a bunch of words covering up the art. Yeah. Like it's his idea of what really cool people sound like, and we've said it on this podcast before, whenever someone tries to sound really cool and you can tell that they're trying to sound really cool, 
they're usually not very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're usually quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're usually pretty lame. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will say I do find it kind of annoying that Leet Speak seems to be a part of the story. What do you call it? I, I'm not even fully aware of what that is. Leet Speak? I don't think I spend enough time online. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if people know what that is anymore or say it, but that's just what I what I was thinking of. Because anytime I see people try to spell words with, uh, instead of using... Like in World Tree, the title of it, you know, like they're, they decide to use the numbers in, in place of the vowels. And I don't know. I just, I mean, I can kind of understand why he did it, but I think I'd be okay if, if, if that was just in the title. But then, like, to see repeatedly throughout the dialogue within the story, to see it spelled W zero R L D T R three three, I find that pretty annoying. Yeah. And fear. They, they keep showing us this caption, fear, PH34R. I find that pretty annoying, mm. too. It kind of reminds me of, like, pager code from when we were in, well, when I was in, like, middle school or even, yeah, middle school, I think. Yeah. Did you, yeah. That's, that's did you exactly ever have what to it is. pager code? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's basically the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. why, uh, I think that's how Leet Speak came about, because it's like. People uh, were going back to pager code. <laughs> yeah, when you use when you use one three three seven, it spells out L E E T. Yeah. So like or, that's or that's you, how you, they they uh, talk when they're using pager code or or on the internet. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. in the early days of the internet, people were kind of using that. It's like yeah, yeah. I or maybe maybe it's because when I was a kid, kids who had pagers thought they were really cool because they could communicate to each other using digits. Yeah, yeah. And something about that irked me enough where even to this day, <laughs> I find it annoying when I see it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's also the added element of the fact that it's just extra work on our part. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, the only real pager code that I remember was 80085. It spells boobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I ever really needed. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That's hey kids. Yeah. If you have a calculator, type in eight zero zero eight five. You'll get a surprise. <laughs> that should be a spin-off mini series for World Tree. <laughs> <laughs> Boobs. <laughs> yeah. And it, it could be about the Sammy character because she's walking around naked all the time anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> James Tiny in the fourth. If you're listening to us, you can have that idea for free. Yeah, yeah. We won't even claim credit or you just just give us a shout out on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, did you feel like there were any other themes or ideas that were explored in the book that we haven't really discussed already? Um... Anything else that jumped out at you? I guess I was also thinking a little bit about the title, World Tree itself, because there's a scene or there's a line of dialogue towards the end. I think it's from Gabriel. I, I forget exactly what issue or what page he says it, but he mentions that 
the world tree functions as the hyperlink between worlds. And I, I guess for some reason when he said that, that was when it, the title kind of clicked for me because it made me think of Yggdrasil, the tree, the world tree from Norse mythology. So it's like yeah. painting this idea of the the world tree of this comic being this thing that connects these different worlds together. So instead of Asgard and Midgard and what have you, you've got the undernet, the internet, and I guess our reality or whatever you want to call it. Cause I guess it's implied that the forces that are emanating from the undernet are from like another dimension or something. So that kind of implies that there are these other worlds out there. I'm not sure how far the story is going to go in terms of detailing that, or if we're going to see, if we're going to actually see what that other world is like. But I guess it just shows that there's like room for exploration. If you know, the story can go a bunch of different ways if he really wants to. Right. Right. Actually, that's a really good point. I, I hadn't taken the time to, consider it i don't really have anything to add to the conversation beyond that but you're right the even the title of world tree should theoretically have some sort of significance to the i guess underlying theme or plot to the story and i don't sitting here right now i don't really have much of anything but what you said makes sense yeah i don't know if they ever announced how many issues this thing is supposed to be but it kind of feels like it could just go on indefinitely or that it at the very least it could be like a pretty long series. Like I don't really see this. It's hard for me to imagine this ending with another five issues, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's too much story. Okay. Like I think on, on the, on the image website, they're only up to issue eight right now. Yeah. And I don't know if they're just on hiatus or, or what, or maybe that's just, you know, what the current release schedule looks like but yeah yeah because i'm, I'm looking at the image website too and it looks like it looks like uh issue five came out at the end of august and then issue six is it just came out this past week so it must be like how a lot of other image books do it where after each arc they probably just take a break and then you know when they're ready to put out the next story they'll serialize it mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah, that way we don't have to deal with some random fill-in artist doing subpar work when we could just be patient and have Blanco do it himself. Yeah, yeah. I guess that opens up the next question, which is with uh, the potential for more going on after what we've read. I mean, I feel like we've addressed this already, but do you feel like you continue to read it? Probably not. I don't yeah. I don't know. I th- I think there's just and it's not because I think it sucks or anything. It's more just it didn't really grab me and I got plenty of other things that I do want to read that I'm actively reading. So it would just be tough to go out of my way to to seek out the next arc but i don't know who knows man 
Albert, what if this episode becomes our most listened to episode and the people want us to cover volume two? Uh, I'm more inclined to believe that our listeners are petty enough to boost this as a highly rated episode to force us to read the rest of the series. <laughs> and if that was the case, I would begrudgingly respect that. <laughs> <laughs> i don't respond well to pleasantries but i do respond well to pettiness <laughs> so does that mean you prefer it when people treat you badly because you respond to pettiness i don't prefer it but i think that if people are going to be to do something if they're going to go out of the way and exert the effort and even potential harm to themselves in order to do wrong to me then they must have really wanted me to do whatever they wanted me to do <laughs> and in that case you got to kind of respect that a little bit <laughs> okay okay uh, but that being said um yeah i don't know like if this was an ongoing series let's say this had the series had been out for a while now and you know we end up having like a hundred issues of this i definitely wouldn't go out of my way to read that um what if I mean, it's only like a 30 issue series even 30 would be might be a road too far if there was just one other trade if this just ended up being a 12 issue series i'm more inclined to like let's say that all 12 issues were out right now and just because it's fresh on my mind, I'd be more inclined to finish reading it just to know how it ended, right? Okay. But, but because the series doesn't really have a firm ending, um, yeah. You don't want to commit yourself I to it? I, I don't want to commit myself to it. And like you said, I, I have other things that I need to read, other things that I want to read. You know, um, yeah, I, I've got a a full queue in front of me so uh it it it's not a story or a comic that i acknowledge that it's it's fine but i just don't think that it grabbed me with a sense of urgency where i need to know how it is <laughs> right yeah. right yeah. i think i'd actually Perhaps. probably be more willing to reread the nice house on the lake in its entirety okay Okay. I'd probably rather do that than read volume two of this because I think The Nice House on the Lake, because it's only a two-volume story or a 12-issue series, it's it's a little bit easier going in because you know that you're going to get closure and it's not going to just uh, you know be something indefinite. But it does exactly. some similar things too, where yeah, it, it's it does some similar things too, where you have this horror element, um, a horror element that's also like vaguely science fiction and a little bit of the post-apocalyptic edge, and there's also that heavy element of characters and their friendships and the shared history, and yeah, I'm not really sure. The, what the structure is of some of Tanyan's other creator-owned stuff is like, but 
having read World Tree and Nice House, it kind of feels like that could be his wheelhouse, you know, like doing stories about people who have like some kind of shared history or some kind of friendship and examining how people crack under these extreme circumstances. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's his thing. Yeah. Which is interesting because on paper, I feel like that's something that speaks to me. Like that's, that's the kind of, those are the kinds of themes or I guess genres of stories that one of the genres of stories that does appeal to me, but for whatever reason, this version of it, or at least in world tree. Uh, yeah. I mean, perhaps I need more of it in order to like really get that sense of, mm-hmm. um, you know, investment that I'm looking for, but uh, just, just on based on these first five issues it's like uh i can give or take i guess (laughs) yeah just on a from a visceral standpoint what would you say is the main reason why you lack the will to continue reading world tree um it's pretty much what you said like on its own these first five issues are are fine but i don't think there's enough of a hook there like yeah, this this whole friendship angle, may, maybe that's the thing. Now that I'm thinking about it, where it's clear that they had some sort of relationship with each other prior to reconnecting as adults and having to like face the threat of this this thing, right? But maybe I just don't really feel any sense of that connection because they don't really show a lot of scenes or like they'll show the occasional scene of them as kids hanging out. But, you know, I I just don't really get the sense that they were really friends before Mm. this moment. Right. So maybe it's unfolding too slowly. Maybe, maybe like, and again, they're like, if, if we had six more issues where they can inject the, connective tissue between all of these characters i could find a little more in uh reason to be invested in it but uh just for what it is it's just you know it's it's fine yeah because yeah like i look at that scene right at the very end and where gabriel dies and i think is is his name liam yeah one of the guys is liam the guy that's cradling his head yeah the guy that looks kind of like keanu reeves um (laughs) Yeah, like Liam is cradling his head and Gabriel is saying, I loved you, you know? Yeah. Like, I always wanted to tell you, but I, and it just felt like it came out of nowhere. <laughs> like, I didn't, granted, maybe you could make the argument that um, you don't need to see a scene of them in their youth having this weird tension, but I don't know. It just feels, it just kind of fell flat to me because it, it just, didn't feel it like i said it just felt like it just came out of nowhere for me so yeah i don't know it's one of those scenes that is obviously meant to be emotional the characters in the scene are emotional but as the audience we're not necessarily invested enough to feel the same kinds of emotions that we're meant to feel or the empathy for the characters isn't quite there yet is it exactly exactly and and that's the thing. Even as adults, once they've reconnected, 
and maybe this is something that I missed in my reading of it, but it didn't feel like they were particularly close or that there was this sense of, let, let's say that you don't include the scene of them in their youth being close as friends and having, um, you know, this complicated relationship with each other. Even as adults, there isn't anything that I caught in their interactions until this very moment where he dies for him to say, I always loved you man you know like it's like were you guys even that close i didn't even really see you again maybe i missed something but it didn't really seem like there was too much interaction on their part at that well i think the implication is that they were all really close back when they were 18 but then after the whole world tree incident they went the next 20 years without seeing each other so Right. Maybe they were they were bonded by a very intense experience, and that can foster feelings yeah. of lifelong closeness, even though they haven't actually talked to each other or been around each other for a couple decades. But that's what I'm saying. Even in the scene after they've, you know, they got the whole gang back together, and yeah, I just didn't really feel. Well, there's also a sense of awkwardness in hanging out with people that you haven't seen in 20 years. That's true. That's true. I'll, I'll I'll give it that. But maybe maybe I just needed a little something to feel to to indicate just a little more that there was a closeness between the two of them that was maybe a little more special than everybody else, right? Maybe we need to get you to go to your next high school reunion so you can confess your love to your crush. That wouldn't work, cause. I've just aged into a miserable bastard. So uh, <laughs> the young man who is capable of feeling any sorts of emotions for other human beings, he's long dead. Uh, <laughs> I am almost unrecognizable as a emotional being to uh, people that knew me in the past. <laughs> hey, maybe that'll, for all you know, that'll just make you even more attractive in the present. You're very optimistic tonight. <laughs> There's a thread of optimism that I'm not accustomed to seeing from you. <laughs> uh, all right. Did you have any other thoughts? Nope. I think that's pretty much all I've really got to say about World Tree. Same here, same here. Do you want to give us some recommendations of comics that you would recommend to people who enjoyed World Tree and would like something in a similar vein? Um, I would definitely st- stick with The Nice House on the Lake, which I've mentioned a few times already. That one is also written by Tanyan, and it's drawn by Alvaro Martinez Bueno. So, yeah, I feel like I've sung its... Uh, if not necessarily praises, I've I've like spoken about its virtues in this episode, so I would recommend that. The only other recommendation that I thought of is another comic that has kind of similar uh, science fiction, post-apocalyptic slash horror vibes, and it's called The Bunker by Joshua Hale Fialkov and joe infernari that one has a similar kind of setup where it's about 
a group of friends who have shared history with each other, but it's also kind of an uncomfortable history. And there's some science fiction stuff that involves time travel. I know you don't like your time travel stuff, but um, I guess I still enjoyed this story. They basically get letters from themselves in the future, and it tells them, the letters tell them what they need to do in order to avoid a worst possible scenario or worst, you know, possible outcome. So they're they're working to try and figure that out. But uh, the twist is that those letters may not be entirely truthful or there's a, at least one of them who may be actively working against them. So there's like mm-hmm. this, this whole tension where the, the group of friends are trying to figure out this mystery together, but there's also the, the fear of like who's going to betray whom. And maybe they don't necessarily feel it at the beginning, but that's something that you as the reader experience as, as you go through the story, you kind of like see what they're, how they're reacting to these pressure cooker circumstances so I yeah I read yeah. that one a few years ago. Uh, maybe the plot's not necessarily the freshest in my mind, but I do remember having a good time with it. If I remember yeah. correctly, the series was published by Oni Press, but it got uh, I don't know if it ended exactly how the creators wanted it to end because I got the sense that it might have been one of those things where sales were starting to get low, so they had maybe like a couple issues or an arc to kind of wrap things up as best as they could. So mm-hmm. so that that might be it might be a victim to market forces in that sense but I still think that first volume is pretty gripping and the story overall was enjoyable so yeah I'd recommend the bunker How about you man Yeah yeah Well I I just wanted to add to what you had to say about the bunker uh I was going to say that even though I'm not a fan of time travel I do think that their version of time travel was one that worked for me because it wasn't about actively going back in time. It was Wait, about these you read letters. It? I forgot. Well, I I read some of the one. I, I think I read the first volume that you loaned to me, so I never actually finished it. Oh, okay. But but from what I remember, yeah, it, it's the premise of these letters from the future. So maybe in in the later issues, there's like more actual time travel involved, but. You know, as long as there's not a guy in a tinfoil suit who goes, I have come from the future to save you, then I'm fine. <laughs> you know, Marty, Marty, we got to go back to the future. We got to <laughs> save your kids. <laughs> come with me right, if that you want my... to live. <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, so the first recommendation that i make is i think this is a comic that is close in spirit to world tree so if you liked world tree you might like this uh that doesn't necessarily mean that i personally liked it like i liked it fine as well but i do think that they're on the same wavelengths in terms of the kind of horror that they're kind of that they're communicating. So that's Outcast by Robert Kirkman and Paul as as a as a I'm I'm sorry if I'm butchering that last name. Um, 
Yeah, and it's a story about a young man who suffers a possession by demons early on in his life, but he grows up to be traumatized, and it isn't until like uh, a a priest reaches out to him that they basically become. It sounds kind of playful uh, to call them like demon hunters, but it's it's it plays it very serious and it plays it very dark. And I do think it does the same thing as World Tree, where the violence is the driving force behind the horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's their attempt. It's Robert Kirkman's attempt to do a frightening horror story where people become. It deals. It deals a lot with possession, so it's people doing these violent, crazy acts that are supposed to be frightening and disturbing. So Is it like I do crossed? think that world. It's not like crossed. It's uh, like the art's better than crossed for for one. So I I do think Paul as as a as a Keda, as a Sita as a Sita, um, I do think his art's pretty good, but it's. You know, it's just things like, oh, this guy ate his ate all his fingers. Isn't that disturbing? It's stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you ended up reading the so, whole series? I didn't read the whole series. I read a bunch of it up to what was out at the at the time. So I, I feel like I read like four or five volumes or something like that. Cause, oh, that's substantial. Yeah, to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't a a long read it was pretty sh- pretty quick from what i remember yeah if you like that kind of horror that tinian is putting out there i would say give outcast uh, a check the next thing that i have on my list would be plutona by jeff lemire and emmy lennox and we talked about how world tree is a story about these friends who get together and you know, they have this traumatic experience in the past and are forced to reunite in the future in order for them to take care of these unresolved threats that they had to deal with in their youth, right? So Plutona, I think, is a better version of that story. I personally felt that it was a better version of that story, uh, except it's not about the kids growing up to reunite as adults to deal with their situation it's really more taken from the perspective of these kids who who end up doing something traumatic and by the end of the story are forced to live with the consequences of it so you can imagine that years down the road something might happen where they may have to come back together to like address the deep dark secret of the thing that they did Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was a better version of that kind of a story. Um, it's not as wordy. I think Jeff Lemire is just a fantastic writer. He's easily like one of my favorites and it's, yeah, it, it's, I, I, I even think I, I love Emmy Landix's art on it. So, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend Plutona. Um, another comic that we referenced while we were talking about world tree um something that's more closely aligned to the science fiction elements of it is i have two books 
in in this for this recommendation one is the invisibles by grant morrison and various artists i do think that that's a another story about this team of individuals who are getting together to face this um this giant conspiracy yeah this giant conspiracy from from what i remember they're i don't really I guess you could call them freedom fighters, but they're mm-hmm. they're kind of freedom fighters of the absurd <laughs> together <laughs> to deal with this overwhelming almost eldritch force that exists in the universe that is I don't know if this is like revealing too much, but from my memory of it, it is a force that is um oppressing mankind to force us to become essentially boring wage slaves okay from what i remember uh skyscrapers are the antenna used to like blast these signals to keep us all uh in a form of uh bondage so that we keep society going by being worker drone ants and (laughs) Yeah, and the Invisibles are the the freedom fighters that are trying to overthrow this force. And I think it's, yeah, it's a much more zanier, um, wildly imaginative version of what World Tree is attempting to to put out in terms of like the science fiction elements. Mm. So there's that. Um, the second book that I'd recommend is Planetary by Warren Ellis and John Cassidy. And that's just something that I point to as an example of Warren Ellis, you know, writing these sort of, again, these very imaginative sci-fi concepts, but in a way that is uniquely Warren Ellis, where just the descriptions and the words that he uses are far more um catchy and creative than tinian's uh exploration of that and uh yeah like from what i remember the what was the uh the the slogan for planetary aren't they like architects of the unknown i think so that sounds right yeah yeah so that that was always the underlying tagline for planetary was they're the architects of the unknown which even even just in that tagline you you can see how like wildly creative and imaginative um Warren Ellis's wordplay is for that um that being said uh I still have to acknowledge that Warren Ellis is problematic due to his uh sex pestery so you know uh, <laughs> yes. if, if that's not something that you can read then uh you know unfortunately <laughs> It, it's something that happened and i wish he it didn't but yeah that's nonetheless uh that is the the book that i was going to recommend so there we go all right those are some pretty inventive choices because i, I can see the connections especially with planetary invisibles and plutona i haven't read mm-hmm. outcast at all and i've only read parts of the invisibles but when you point out like the thematic concepts that make them p- possibly of interest of people for people who liked 
uh, World Tree. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're a fan of Grant Morrison, like I feel like Invisibles is on that list of things to read from him. It's high up there in terms of works that he's produced that gets a lot of accolades and attention. So yeah. it's got to be on that list of things that we have to read someday. Like mm-hmm. I, I did read it. I remember like reading it from the library, but the thing that was messed up was I think they had like the first four volumes and then they're always like missing that fifth one. So I never could finish it. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. That's what happened to, to me it. when I remember reading yeah. it from the library like 20 years ago, but they only had the first, I don't know, like you said, the first, three or four or five and then there was like one that they didn't have and then they had like the last one and i was like oh man (laughs) yeah how am i supposed to read this (laughs) yeah it's ridiculous i think now all of it is available at the library or at least it's all on hoopla i think yeah yeah actually might not be (laughs) but okay anyways yeah yeah i'd have to double check okay uh well, I'm putting my hoopla up right now. Uh, let me just invisibles. Let's see. Because it looks like hoopla has all four of the deluxe editions. Okay, okay. So, so that's that, issues okay. one through twelve, thirteen to twenty-five, and then the next volume of one through thirteen, and fourteen to twenty-two. So I think that should be all of it. Sweet, sweet. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, now we gotta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We got any uh, anything for next week's episodes, or is it just going to be a surprise? I guess it's going to be a surprise to the listener and to us. All right. We should so probably uh, figure to, out what we want to cover. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to 2024. You're, you're, you're entering the new year with a surprise from your from your favorite local podcasters. So there Happy we go. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> That's our gift to you. Uh, if nothing else, uh, if you want to contribute to the conversation, you know, you can X at us. You can uh, DM us on our Instagram at Between the Gutters. You can email us at Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I just wanted to mention that we recently received some words of praise from steven siegel who wrote it's a bird and who co-wrote uh sandman mystery theater uh if you're listening thank you very much for the kind words so yeah uh if there's anything you'd like to say to us please feel free to message us um anybody not not just steven siegel and uh yeah and uh, if you're listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on please feel free to give us a high rating because that would boost us and you know let other people know us about us we would greatly appreciate that that's right thanks everybody thanks for listening and happy new year again we will catch you next week peace bye everyone <laughs>